Father, we thank you so much for this new day, for the privilege and blessing it is to be one of your children. Thank you, Father, for the blessings we have to just freely meet as we do today, to have your word in our own native language and tongue. And Father, I especially thank you for how your spirit works within your people to give us understanding in your truth. Thank you for the privilege it is to be able to speak your word to your people. And how I pray, Father, that you would make me faithful to your word, clear in what is taught, and that in all things you would receive the honor and glory and all who hear would benefit and be blessed by our study together. In the name of the only one who is worthy, Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen. There's a lot of special things about fall. If you live a little further north, we see a glimmer of it here, but boy, falls can be really spectacular when all the trees have their leaves changed to the various colors. Uh, the Christmasness that's in the air, it's almost an invigorating time. For me, one of the things that I always look forward to in the fall is football. Um, without a doubt, it's got to be one of my favorite sports, and I enjoy watching it. Not quite as much as I did enjoy playing it, but I still do enjoy watching it. And since I played on defense more than on offense, I like scrutinizing the defense, sometimes thinking I need to you know, ridicule them for not playing as they should, but boy, do I like seeing a good hit. And especially when that linebacker can come through and clean the clock of the quarterback by hitting them on the blind side. There's nothing more thrilling than coming full tilt, putting your shoulder into his side, and often seeing him fumble the ball and the turnover that comes. Being blindsided is one of the worst things for an individual in the game of football. Something about football that is important for us to understand is that very often it reflects life itself. And being blindsided in life can have far greater consequences than a quarterback fumbling a ball. So often we're hit with things we don't expect. Sometimes we're just ignorant of what's really going on. And because of that, we suffer consequences. But being blindsided spiritually is far worse than maybe it has to do with business, with relationships, with other issues that one faces in life. I can only imagine the horror, the terror of a multitude that stand before Christ. And he says to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. We're not talking about 
various religious people of the world. We're talking about people that get blindsided. But Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? But Lord, didn't we work miracles in your name? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We know all too well in our own life there's things about us that we we don't realize. And the reality is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And as we have been looking in the book of Revelation and in chapters 2 and 3 in particular, where I want us to turn today, there's the recognition that the church that he mentions there is often blindsided, unaware of its true spiritual condition. Church at Ephesus, you're zealous in your works, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. The church at Sardis, well, you have a name, a reputation that you live, but you're dead. The church at Laodicea, you say you are rich and have need of nothing, but you don't understand that you're poor and wretched and blind and naked, blindsided. And for us, as we look at Christ's assessment as the head of a church, it's important for us to recognize that in this section, he's talking to us. And we can become so accustomed to what we perceive in our day as the norm of Christianity that we can become blindsided. In the middle of the 19th, 1900s, 50 to 70, somewhere in there, a man by the name of A.W. Tozier wrote a treatise, small little tract, called The Old Cross and the New. And the reality is that the New Cross has pretty much become accepted in the church as what it means to walk with God. Listen to what he said back then and reflect on how we can see it today. Unannounced and almost undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences, fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of Christian life. And from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique. A new type of meeting and a new type of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same and its emphasis not what it was before. The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of a journey. 
The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is its friendly pal. And if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure. The new cross encourages a new and different, entirely different evangelistic approach. The evangelist preaches not contrasts, but similarities. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only at a higher level. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. And I add to that, and because it misses the meaning, popular Christianity has a new form of Christian instruction and telling people how to live. And it's probably reflected most directly in the music that's being produced in our day. There are some really great new hymns, but by and large, most of them are self-centered. By and large, most of them are humanistic. By and large, most of them are nothing more than self-help methods on how to improve oneself rather than the focus on the fact that apart from me, said Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. We're blindsided in life, first because the unseen terror all around us sometimes hits us when we're not expecting. And we have to be reminded by the Apostle Peter and others that we shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you for a testing of your faith, but to understand that the same thing is, being, uh, is happening to your brethren. We read in the book of Psalms, it is through many afflictions that the righteous are saved. We read from the pen of the apostle Paul, It is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Not a very seeker-friendly message. But older hymns, for example, would ask you the question, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? Popular Christianity would tell us that. You just trust Christ and all your problems will go away. 
And if you're having problems, you just don't have enough faith. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by your word. When Paul gave Timothy instruction, he said to Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And our calling in this life is not a calling to a happier, jollier way of existence, but one brings honor and glory to the Lord as he conforms us more and more into the image of Christ and to have a peace and a joy that the world does not give and a peace and a joy that the world cannot take away. And again, from another track written by A.W. Tozier, he said, the greatest manifestation of the emptiness of the spiritual life of those who profess to be God's people is the clamoring after things to provide them with joy and happiness. I'd like us to look at what Jesus has to say, not to put us down, but to encourage us in light of the reality of what it means to be a Christian living in this world so that we're not blindsided by the things that happen to God's people. Now, we know in the book of Revelation, it is the disclosure of Jesus Christ. It tells us more about him, and it also provides us with his instruction about the things that are yet to take place. In chapter 1, verse 19, he gave John the blueprint for this book. He said, write the things you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things which are the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will be after these things, beginning with chapter 4 to the end of the book. And to whom was this book specifically written? It was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor that he specified for himself. And as he looked at those seven churches, he not only provided a complete picture of the condition of the church in the day in which he lived, but it's a continued complete picture for every generation as we await the culmination when the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends and the dead in Christ are raised and we who are alive are caught up, are raptured to be with the Lord in the air. And if you look with me in verse 7 of chapter 2, we notice that for the instruction to us today, he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so not only was God speaking to Ephesus, he was speaking to the other six that are included here, but through them to all the churches in his day and to us today through them. And notice he says, to him who overcomes. 
one individual that wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation said, you know, we could almost call this the book of the overcomers. Because this is a term unique to the writing of John. And you find that not only does this term, he who overcomes or the overcomer, is found seven times in these two chapters. It's obviously at the end of every one of these letters to the individual churches. But five other times in the book of Revelation, the term overcomer is used. Because God's people, they are Christians. Isn't that right? And the reason they are Christians is because they were first called little Christ or little anointed ones in Antioch. And before then, they were called his disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples in my name. And so the Lord could have said here, and to the Christians, to my disciples. He could have also said, to the believer. Because it is only by being a believer that one has a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through what? Faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. But why did he select this term? The term overcomer means you're facing an obstacle. The term overcomer means you're faced with difficulties. The term overcomer implies that there is a resistance to you to accomplish what it is that you want to do. Now, you're very familiar with this Greek word in one of its forms. Many of you are probably wearing those shoes. Nike. The Greek word, Nike, the noun form, or nikeo, in its verb form, the one who overcomes. By the way, you hear that in some of the names of people in the New Testament, and probably the one that is the most well-known in the Christian community is a leader in Israel who came to speak to Christ, recorded for us in John 3, and his name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus. And the basic meaning of the term Nike, the basic meaning of the term Nakeo in its verbal form means to overcome, to conquer, to have victory. This is the individual who's going to battle. And the ones who returned having suppressed the enemy were the Nikes. They were the victors. They were the conquerors. They're the ones who would overcome the opposition. Your life and my life is like that. This world is not a friend of grace to help you on to God. You deal with the fact that in the world you're going to have what, said Jesus Christ? Tribulation. But here's that term used of our uh, spiritual head, the head of the church of Jesus Christ. Be of good cheer. You know why? I have overcome. I have conquered. I am victorious. I have overcome the world. You and I live in a world that is not a friend of grace. And so as we look at the book of Revelation and as Jesus Christ gives us information for us to better understand our situation, this side of glory, I need to recognize I have been called as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And this world hates the people of God. 
because they love darkness because their deeds are evil. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in his own day? And believe me, that has not changed today. If they hate you, you know what? It hated me before it hated you. And the reason it happens that way is because the servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me, they will hate you also. We can be tolerant of every religion of the world except biblical Christianity because men hate the truth. Because the natural man finds the things of the scripture ridiculousness. And we will find it in the academic world. We will find it in the scientific world. Individuals are repeatedly going to provide us with the same option that Adam was given by Satan in the garden. Do we believe the word of man or do we believe the word of God? Do we put our confidence in the creature or do we put our confidence in the creator? The issue is always the same. And the reality is the word of God stands forever. And people may think it's foolishness. The people may think it's not relevant for today. It's archaic and old-fashioned. But the reality is it keeps God's people from being blindsided. We live in a hostile environment. And it isn't only that we face the oppositions in this world, but who's the mastermind behind all of that opposition? Satan himself. So Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, and guess what he told them? Put on the whole armor of God. Because you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And the church, this side of glory, is the church militant. And it's the recognition that we go forth in the name of Jesus Christ. And the victory he has accomplished is what he bestows upon his people. And so to the overcomer, here are special promises. Now, what are they? Well, as we look at them, I tried to put them into some categories And I realize with these uh, maybe a little longer than intended introduction, we're not going to look at them all today. So we'll have to look at the rest of them next time. But look at what he promises. The first has to do with the consequences that come to the overcomer. And those consequences are first found in this verse 7. To the one or him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Milton wrote a work about this, didn't he? Paradise lost. We cannot even begin to imagine what was lost in Adam's sin. We cannot even begin to imagine what this world would be like if it wasn't under the curse. We cannot even begin to imagine the splendor and the beauty that would be true of this creation if it was not polluted by sinful man and the curse that God imposed to remind us that things are not the way they're supposed to be because of sin. So if we look at this, we find this tree of life in the paradise of God goes back to the book of Genesis. And it goes back to Adam being placed in the garden. 
And in the midst of the garden was this tree of life. And as you look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3 with things expressed about the tree of life, we find that after man was given judgment by God because of his sin, he stationed himself in a blaze of glory, that pillar that was there of a sword spinning and turning in every direction so that man could not return back into the garden to do what? eat of the tree of life and live forever. And we don't see that the tree of life is mentioned again until we come here to Revelation chapter 2. And then when we look in Revelation chapter 22, and it speaks about the conditions in the new earth, it speaks of a glorious tree of life even whose leaves are for the healing of the nation and the benefit that comes. So what are the consequences for the overcomer? Well, the first is the reality that I am going to partake of eternal life in the glorious uh, world that God is creating for his people. And to be there in his presence enjoying him forevermore. Now, the flip side of that is not just the consequence because of being an individual that is trusting Christ and looking forward to my time in the presence of the Lord, but notice what he says in verse 11. To the church at Smyrna, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death is what happened in the garden. It's when Adam willfully disobeyed God. And the day you eat, you will die. And all who came into this world since that time are partaking of that sentence, are partaking of that condition. As in Adam, all die. Thankfully, the other side is, even so, all in Christ will be made alive. Now he says, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. If we understand that death has as its root and basic meaning separation, doesn't mean annihilation. Death is separation. The first death was that spiritual separation that took place between Adam and God. It was a change in Adam's condition and he experienced things that he had never experienced before. And after Adam had disobeyed God, God, as he typically had done, was walking in the garden to enjoy communion with Adam. And Adam said, when I heard the sound of you in the garden, I hid myself because I was what? I was afraid. Angst, fear the reality within human experience is all associated with that alienation, that separation from God. The second death 
it tells us at the end of the book of Revelation. If you look with me in chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. It says, verse 14. Death, Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Spiritual separation in the first death. The reality that a curse was placed upon mankind and the punishment for that disobedience is a separation within our human being. When we physically die, our immaterial self is separated from our material self. And the person who has died can no longer animate the material part of his being. There's been a separation. But this is far, far worse This separation, this second death is a permanent separation from God, a place of torment and punishment. Jesus Christ referred to it as the place of outer darkness. It's a place where the uh, flame is never quenched. It's the place where in agony, the worm never dies. It is a recognition of perpetual punishment and alienation from God. The overcomer will not be hurt by the second death. When you and I think of what a blessing it is to be the object of God's grace, to be a child of God, even though we look at the reality of the difficulties that are in front of us as we go through life, there is right now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the recognition that God is the one who is working within his people, sustaining and strengthening them so that they remain faithful to him and experience the victory, the ultimate victory over the second death itself. In that provision from the Lord back in Revelation chapter 2, look at what God gives to the overcomer as a blessing and a benefit to them. In verse 17, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Can you remember back to the Old Testament? What was the manna? It was the food that God gave to the nation of Israel for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. It was known as the bread from heaven. In John chapter 6, Christ said, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, but I am the true 
bread of heaven. I am the true bread of life. And he that believes in me shall never die. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. So if God gives us the hidden manna, what is he really saying? We get to partake of Christ. We have a deep abiding relationship with him. And he's the one that nourishes us and sustains us and strengthens us as we go through life. Not only does he provide us with Christ himself, but notice he says in verse 17, I will give him a new stone, a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. The white stone was a symbol of acceptance and a name written on it that no one knows but himself means that God's making his people new. Something different and unique from what they were before. Because the name is an expression of the very essence of the person. And God is making his people new. And then over in chapter 3 and in verse 5. He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now we know the image that we have in the scripture of one's clothing is an expression of what they are and what they do. And so Isaiah, for example, could say, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. They're not pleasurable. They're not acceptable. They're generated from our own desire to exalt and glorify ourselves. But these garments are a gift that's given from God. And what is it that makes them white? Look with me over in Revelation chapter 9. In, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 7 and in verse 14. He said, these are all clothed in white robes, verse 13. John, do you know whom they are and where they come from? And John said to him, my Lord, uh, you know. And so he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what God gives to his people is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are therefore acceptable to God as his children. And what flows out of that, as we go over to Revelation chapter 19, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. 
when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and spoke to them about the significance and the implications of the resurrection. He said, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. When you think of all the things that people do with their life, in the medical community, probably in the legal community also, and in each of us in our homes, there are past documents and things that were done and we gotta make sure they don't get into other people's hands, so what do we do with them? We shred them. And what has really struck me is that's my life, just being shred up. It means nothing to anyone else. It has no eternal significance. How about the things that are done for Christ? Even when someone gives a cup of cold water in my name, he will not lose his reward. See, this earthly life, it soon shall be past, and only what's done for Christ shall last. So as God's people live in this world, that is hostile to grace, God is the one that enables them through Jesus Christ to be acceptable to him, to be pleasing to him, and oftentimes even unknown to themselves to be used of God in ways of blessings to others as he performs the righteous acts through his saints. So who is this overcomer? Lest you mistakenly think this is only for some super saints. This is only for some really serious, zealous Christians. John makes it very clear in his first epistle. Whatever is born of God... Chapter 5, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What? Even our faith. And who is the one that overcomes the world? Even he who believes that Jesus is God the Son. He is the individual that recognizes, Lord, there is nothing in myself to commend me to you, and I am trusting in the all-sufficient work of my wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the same way as I go through each day, as I look at what you ask of me, I am depending upon, I am trusting you to do beyond all I could ever ask or think in the way I act to others that the blessing of Christ might flow through me to impact and touch them. Who's the one that overcomes the world? Who is the overcomer? Why, it's a synonym with a believer. And we may not know how God does this work within us, but one thing we can know for sure, I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to keep me unto that day. He is the one that enables me to rejoice and participate in the victory of Jesus. He is the one that enables me to overcome the world because of what he has accomplished on my behalf. Let's pray.